Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. During our series on Who Am I?, we focused on a variety of negative mood states that so many people struggle with. One of the most common and damaging of these is depression. We've covered depression in the past on the podcast. We've actually dedicated four episodes at this point to depression and bipolar disorder. And we're happy today to have the pleasure of welcoming a true expert on the subject to the show, Dr. Alex Korb. Dr. Korb is the author of The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. He studied the brain for over 15 years and earned his PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. He's also published over a dozen peer-reviewed journal articles on depression, neuromodulation, and other topics. His expertise extends into leadership and motivation, mindfulness, and even physical fitness. He's actually coached the UCLA Women's Ultimate Frisbee team for 12 seasons and is a three-time winner of USA Ultimate's Coach of the Year, which is both a fantastic accomplishment and does a great job of breaking down some stereotypes surrounding researchers. So Dr. Korb, thank you for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Although having written a book about depression and talking about well-being, I always feel like how are you doing is like a loaded <laughs> I like I have to be doing well, but I am doing well. Well, that's good. Yeah, no, I think that even just right there, what you're saying, something I was reading recently was that a better way to ask that question is is not are you doing okay, which can have kind of a loaded connotation to it, or you're speaking, but instead like how are you feeling, or what are you experiencing, or like how have you been recently, and those could be like slightly softer ways to get into that question around a person's well being. Yeah, no, I mean, there's not a a correct way to do it because we're all bringing different expectations to the issue, and part of the reason why it sort of doesn't matter what you say is because most people aren't really listening to you asking the question anyway. They're just going to respond with fine. Yeah, I I don't know how there's an efficient way to kind of do an episode on it in the context of a podcast like ours. But one of the real questions that I've been kind of pondering on uh, recently is that kind of transactional nature of our relationships and how we can be better about expressing at different moments of time how accessible we want to be to other people. You know, is this an interaction where I want you to just respond with like, I'm doing fine, I'm doing okay today, or sure, I'm great, how are you? Or do I actually want to get into kind of more of a real conversation about how you're truly doing? Because there are so many moments where it would be really wonderful to have somebody have like a very authentic response to that question. But we're so trained to have the transactional response that it's just kind of tough to get there with somebody else. And I don't know, I wonder if that impacts our ability to like relate to people more effectively in culture. I have no good answers to this question. I'm just raising them as questions. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think the transactional nature of relationships is something that can be very problematic because it prevents us from getting deeper and being mm-hmm. vulnerable, which is so important mm-hmm. to our well-being. And yet other things that are also important to our well-being are just having positive experiences and positive interactions and like Mm -hmm. being productive and doing stuff. Uh, And so a lot of it comes down to your mindset of what our goals are, what we're trying to accomplish, and in a larger sense of what our values are. Because sometimes the answer is, oh, I'd really like to hear more about this. I have this deadline. Can we schedule lunch later? And other times it's, oh, this person really needs me. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think that one of the things you're kind of alluding to a little bit here is at least in my own life, I've had the experience recently where sometimes when you want to do five things, you end up being unhappy regardless of which one of them you pick. Yeah. And this is something that to an extent you kind of talk about actually in the book, The Upward Spiral, that we can have a lot of like perfectly good enough options. But if we get kind of trapped in the idea of finding the one that's actually exactly the one that we want to do right now, all of those options, even if they're perfectly good, start to look kind of terrible. And I mean, for me, if I want to both be really dedicated to my career at like a macro level and also build really strong relationships with other people and also relax sometimes and also get good sleep, every time that I'm not doing any of those things, I feel bad about it. Right. Or I might be triggered into feeling bad about it. So I could be sitting on my computer and I've been noticing this recently and I'm like working very hard. And in the back of my brain will be like all the tasks I'm not working on in that moment or all the other things that I kind of wish I were doing. Yeah. No, I mean, and a lot of it is, I think it's based on this magical thinking that you somehow could have everything exactly as you want it without having to give up anything. And, and part of that comes from the fact that our, our prefrontal cortex is really so amazing at imagining future possible scenarios. And so, you know, I talk to students, college students all the time because I teach at UCLA and they're stuck on, they're doing their homework and they're thinking about hanging out with their friends. Oh, my friends are doing fun stuff. But like then when they're hanging out with their friends, they're feeling guilty that they're not doing their homework. And it's because we have this like magical, or ability of our prefrontal cortex to imagine a world in which, what if I could just also complete my homework and hang out with my friends? And, it would just like <laughs> and so therefore, when we compare whatever our actual options are, any of our actual options seem worse. And we just succeed in making ourselves unhappy. One of the things I like to talk about our brains is that a lot of the things that sometimes end up as being bugs that get in the way of what we're trying to accomplish are the same things that make it these amazing features. Mm. Is the ability to imagine future possible scenarios a feature or a bug? Well, if it's getting in the way of your happiness or what you're trying to accomplish, then it's a bug. But the ability to do that is one of the things that makes us uniquely human. And if you were just using it in a slightly different way, then it would actually enhance your ability to be happy. Yeah, we're already deep into the topic here. And I know we're going to be exploring depression, but I kind of want to use this thread that we've been on as a way to flag something that I think is important and then create a frame in which then we can go further with this deep dive. So sort of two-parter here. Part one to this whole notion of as Forrest said at the beginning, wow, I, I could do five different things. And anytime I'm doing one of them, I think I ought to be doing the rest of them or something like that. I had a friend tell me something a long time ago that really, really landed when I was angsting about something similar, that I couldn't be the world's best academic. I couldn't be the world's best monk. I couldn't be the world's best parent. Any Which one I did, I was falling short of the others. He mm -hmm. said, yeah, Rick, mm -hmm. but you can be one of the world's best householders as a total package. I think about decathletes in the Olympics who are probably not world-class or certainly not a gold medalist in any single event, but in the package, they can be spectacular. 
And that reframed things for me enormously to think much more about the total package of being a human, engaged in a career, committed to family, developing oneself personally, interests and play of different kinds. How can we be be our best as that whole package? And then you start making practical decisions about it. I agree with that completely. And a a lot of that comes down to knowing what is important to you Mm -hmm. and understanding what your own limitations are. Yeah. Those are the things basically that prevent us from doing that. You might want to be really good at this and this and this and this, but like, okay, there are 24 hours in a day. Like that's one of your limitations. You have limitations of energy or ability to focus. And if you don't, accept those limitations, then you're constantly going to be banging your head against some brick wall that you can't change instead of maximizing the things that you can. That's right. You can be anything you want to be, but you can't be everything you want to be. And if you can't accept that like by doing one thing, you're going to not be doing something else, yeah. you're always going to be sort of upset. Related to all that, kind of as a frame, I was thinking about where we started, the whole question of how you doing, and then how people reply to that. And I lived in Germany for a year and and I, I would say to people, how you doing? And I would expect a one word answer. <laughs> and at least in Germany at the time, they would stop on the street and then they would answer the question for 10 minutes. In and you're like, what's depth. wrong with this guy? He's answering yeah. the question. <laughs> But I had to learn how to do that. And a related thing, though, is when I've been in Australia, I've traveled there a lot. I see that people are not functioning in daily life at 110% of real capacity. They're actually moving through downtown Sydney, doing business, but at 90% of capacity. So when they bump into someone they haven't seen for a while, they actually have the extra 10 minutes to give to that person. Mm -hmm. And it makes me want to really appreciate the ways in which, as we enter into the topic of depression and what people can do about it, that it's culturally situated, as it were, that it's nested in, including the kind of frustrations that we started talking about here about, why can't I be every which way compared to every single world-class person in every category fully, totally myself. Why not? Well, that's a very American drive. And so in this culture, the feature of our capacity to do mental time traveling and so forth that we were talking about here and imagine different possible futures and the rest of that. Back in the Serengeti Plains, back in the Stone Age, maybe even when my dad was growing up on a ranch in North Dakota in 1920, that was a really, really strong feature. But because of our culture that has taken that feature and really driven it with, you know, the ancient fires of, you know, greed and, you know, delusion and hatred, it has become a bug in the lives of many people. So that's one reason why I really appreciated your book, because you're helping people to be aware of the operation of the machinery, as it were, under the hood of who they are. So then in turn, they can become more skillful Mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I totally agree with that, that like these cultural influences and other societal influences do affect your depression. And a lot of times, like one of the biggest problems that I see when people have depression is they're thinking, you know, what's wrong with me? They're always like blaming themselves. Well, you have certain tendencies and limitations and habits and whatever 
but you exist in a culture with other people that have other values and other triggers and environment or whatever. It's not like, are you good or bad? It's just sometimes, are you maybe better or worse suited to the environment that you find yourself in? It doesn't even make sense to ask like, who are you independent of the environment that you are in and the interactions that you have and the cultural values that you have. And so it's possible that you could move to a different country or just change jobs or change something else about your environment or the people that you're interacting with. And then poof, your depression might be gone. I don't know, but it's certainly possible. It's certainly something that's influencing it. Mm. The issue is that you often can't change everything about your environment or that changing your environment would be very difficult. What we're kind of starting to wander our way toward here are the various aspects and elements that can contribute to the experience of depression. And so to kind of speak to that, how does depression work, kind of to use the most generic possible word here, in the brain? What are the different contributing factors to it? What are the major structures that are involved? Understanding that this is, of course, for a general audience, we're not going to go deep into it here, but kind of in very broad strokes, what's happening in the mind of a depressed person and how does the depression kind of, quote unquote, get in there? Right. Well, I mean, the good news is that we can't get too into the details because no one really understands Mm. the answer. And part of that (laughs) is because there's like there's no such thing as depression really there's a diagnosis based on a bunch of symptoms but everyone pretty much agrees that like okay well like what we call depression is probably a bunch of different things that we don't really fully understand and so we sort of lump them all together mm-hmm. there are some basics that we can understand but one of the important ones is that it's not entirely in you. In that like, yes, you are the one experiencing and it's your brain circuits that are affected. But some of that, as we said before, is affected by the job that you're in and the society that you're in and the interactions with the people that you have in the environment that you're in and the way that those interact with your own thoughts and beliefs and actions sometimes create this pattern of activity and reactivity that the brain gets stuck in. Mm. To get more specific about what's happening in the brain, it's a problem with how the thinking, feeling, and action circuitry in the brain are communicating with and regulating each other. And I could use more sciencey terms like how the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system and the dorsal striatum and nucleus accumbens are all communicating and regulating each other. Unfortunately, there's not like a a simple test that you can do that could just show you what is happening in your brain. Because I'm a neuroscientist and people... I write about depression and I have access to an fMRI machine. People are always like, oh, can you just like scan my brain and like tell me what's wrong with me? And the answer is, well, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, I'm sorry, there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> but like, I think a lot of people who have depression, it, they feel like, it feels like, oh, there's a part of my brain that's missing or like, oh, I have a tumor that's growing here. 
sure. In like 5% of cases, you have some medical condition. But just because it feels like something is wrong with your brain that I could just like see it on an MRI, that's not actually the case. So there's nothing materially different in terms of brain structure between the brain of a depressed person and a not depressed person. So I mean, even hesitate in answering that is that mm. there's no individual way to diagnose someone with depression based on brain structure. It's not like you are missing some brain region. There's no even difference in brain activity that I could mm. look at and oh, yep, this brain region is overactive, this is underactive or whatever. Now, this sort of goes in the face with what mo- most people understand about neuroimaging and neuroscience because they could be like, well, what do you mean? What are these studies that show, well, people with depression have higher amygdala reactivity or whatever? And I would say, well, sure. If you take 20 people with depression and you take 20 people without depression and you put them in these narrow experimental conditions, you show them emotional facial expressions, there is a statistical difference between those two groups that on average, the people with depression say have higher amygdala reactivity, which is a part of the emotional circuitry in the brain. Now, unfortunately, there are in that group of people with depression, people with low amygdala reactivity who are nevertheless still depressed. And there are people who don't have depression who are kind of have high amygdala reactivity. They're not completely separable populations. I might be able to have you do an fMRI study and say, oh, you have high amygdala reactivity. But I couldn't say, oh, yeah, that's what's causing your depression. Mm-hmm. You might have had high amygdala reactivity before that. And in fact, one of the things we know is that people with more emotional brains, say people with higher amygdala reactivity, are more likely to get stuck in this pattern of depression because you experience emotions more intensely and that can Mm. affect all these other systems. But that's not like what's causing your depression. You could be perfectly fine, for example, if you had that high emotional reactivity, but then you also had good habits to help you deal with that emotional reactivity or you had a good support social support system to help you get through those emotions like any of those things would help improve it but some of the things you can't change like the way my brain's developed or the genes that i have but it's not any one circuit or brain region that's causing the problem it's the dynamic interaction of the specific tuning that you have of all of these different brain circuits combined with the environment that you are in. That was a great overview of a very complex topic, by the way, Alex. So thank you for doing that. So Alex, I want to offer a really goofy frame. And then I want to burrow into some of the many practical suggestions you have in your book, which is, I I think, some of its major strengths. So Frisbee's. I have thrown Frisbees many times in a very mediocre kind of way, and I really love it. And I was thinking weirdly, I told Forrest this in advance, and he (laughs) tried to make me not bring it up, but I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to bring it up, which is that I think actually a really healthy brain, because that's where we want to start. What is a healthy brain? A healthy brain is like a Frisbee. It is 
rotating, it's functioning, it's, but it's centered and stable, and yet it's still dynamic. It has directionality to it, such as in Ultimate Frisbee, and it's embedded in a field of relationships. So don't you think that's a fantastic metaphor? One <laughs> word will suffice, and I hope it starts with a Y. Yeah, sure. Great. That's it. You did it. Awesome. <laughs> You're bailing him out here, Alex. Okay, so now I want to get practical. Okay. So with that as kind of a framework, this idea of, you know, homeostatic equilibrium, you know, it's, it's in an equilibrium, it's dynamic. But the thing I w- like want to yeah. point out about like why it's good is like, if you take a snapshot of a Frisbee, like you just take a picture. Yeah. You can't tell, is it flying? Is it spinning? Is it just falling? And, and that's sort of like what's going on in your brain. That's great. Yeah. You could take a snapshot, but like what you can't know is like, well, or sort of what defines depression is that you're like stuck yeah. in this pattern over time. Once it sort of starts to form, it becomes this very stable pattern of dynamics. Speaking to some of those things that you're talking about, behavioral change over time and the way that those things all connect to one each other in kind of complex ways. You, very early on in the book, you speak to two different spirals, an upward spiral that the book is named after and a downward spiral. And it's a very evocative name. And actually Rick's used the phrase an upward spiral to speak to like growing patterns of strength development over time and the way that little strengths can all contribute to one another. So it's, it's very much a rich metaphor for him and his work and kind of us and our work together. But I was wondering if for a more general audience, you could kind of explain what you mean by these two terms. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't come up with the term, the upward spiral. Sure, yeah. I mean, the, one of the researchers who popularized it, Barbara Fredrickson, mm-hmm. you know, likes to think of it in psychological terms of like, you know, positive moods and positive actions and positive behaviors tend to lead to further positive moods and further positive actions. And it sort of comes from the concept of a downward spiral, which I think most people are familiar mm-hmm. with. Well, some thought pops into your head of, uh, I don't really want to go you know, hang out with my friend. I don't think I'll have that much fun. And so then you, that changes your actions. And so you, like, you don't do it. And then that means you're you know, sitting at home all weekend. And then you're just sort of stuck in your own head. And then like, just feel worse. And it makes you less likely to reach out and do positive actions. And one of the things about a downward spiral is that it is sort of inadvertent a lot of times. Like we do something and we don't realize that it's going to have these negative consequences and it sort of snowballs until it sort of often reaches this place where we don't feel like we have any good options. But that feeling is itself part of that downward spiral. And so then we don't take these good options. And one of the things about the upward versus downward spiral is they're the same thing. The brain is full of all these intricate interacting neural circuits that are feedback loops. Meaning like, well, the thought circuits in your brain, will those influence the feeling circuits and those influence the, the habit circuits. And so if some, something happens in one of those, it can influence the others or external factors can play a role as well some external event could trigger an upward spiral or a downward spiral. But you can also sort of take advantage of the same dynamics and trigger it yourself just by, oh, thinking about a goal or practicing some gratitude or these other interventions. And one of the things that I also want to add about like sort of my use of the upward spiral is like I agree 
with the previous descriptions of it as like based on, oh, positive actions lead to positive emotions and so on and so forth. But as a neuroscientist, I like to just think of it in terms of the brain, sort of as I've already described. And so I think of it as simply the idea that positive actions or positive life changes or positive thoughts lead to positive brain changes, which make further positive life changes more accessible. Alex, I really want to underline what you just said there, because as you probably know, most of the research on the so-called upward spiral is really about states begetting states that beget states. And that's good. In other words, you, let's say, have a state of a positive attitude, which then leads to a positive experience, which then fosters a positive behavior, which creates another positive attitude, which creates more experiences. All of that's great. But because it's state to state to state, it's extremely vulnerable to disruption if the conditions that enable those states or foster those states fall away. And that's utterly distinct, as you all know, from trait development, the movement from state to trait to state to trait to state, that kind of more reliable and durable lasting change that's based on actually lasting changes of neural structure and function. So I wanted to really just underline what you said there, super validated. And it's been really striking to me how often people who are in the growth business, including myself, many other therapists, coaches, mindfulness trainers, compassion teachers, and so forth, pay almost no attention to the conversion from state to trait in any kind of lasting and durable way. And so I really want to flag for people just the super importance and the uncommonness of this point that you're making here. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you. No, that's a, a good good point to bring up. And I, I mean, I do think a lot of people, like when they talk about trying to experience more happiness or well-being, they overlook a little bit of complexity of like, well, what do you mean by that question? Because a lot of times the things that will make you happy right now, or rather give you positive emotions or at least less negative emotions right now, will actually not be helpful for tomorrow or next week or might even actually get in the way of it. And so something like, I don't know, physical exercise. Well, the reason why people don't do it is like, well, what's, what are my choices? I could sit here and watch Netflix or I could go for a run. Well, the Netflix is going to you know, be more enjoyable in the next 5 minutes. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's because, well, that's what your nucleus accumbens does. It tries to get you to do whatever is most immediately pleasurable. And because you have developed a habit of listening to that, it feels very difficult to override that. And so you're like, oh, you try and tear yourself away from what's the most immediately pleasurable. And then that just stresses you out, which activates your habit system, which tries to get you to go back to your old patterns. And so in order to sort of break that cycle and change your emotional reactivity or change something about your your trait or the dynamics of what's going on in your brain, like you have to be able to tolerate and accept certain negative emotions in and negative feelings in the short term. And if you don't have a sense of why you're doing that, well, then it just feels like torture. And that's one of the reasons why people fail to change. If you understand the neuroscience, you can say, oh, I'm not doing this just like feel happy right now. But I know if I just like 
keep doing it. It's having positive effects on my brain beyond just, oh, making me feel happy right at the moment. It's helping grow new cells in the hippocampus and it's creating all these different changes in the dopamine system and the serotonin system. And so I know that it's, it's having some effect so I can keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking more about that trait development that we're talking about here, one of the key skills basically that you're mentioning here is a certain amount of distress tolerance, the ability to keep on going even when things get a little bit tough, particularly when you're kind of doing something for the first time. What are some of the other key traits that people can develop or need to develop in order to exit a downward spiral? Well, acceptance and self-compassion are two big ones. I mean, acceptance of just negative emotions or acceptance of your limitations, for example. And I think people have a lot of difficulty with acceptance because I think they interpret it as sort of giving up or resignation. I want to point out that like, I don't mean accepting that things should be this way, but simply that they are this way and that you don't have full control over them. And once you sort of accept the things that you don't have full control over, then you can focus your energy and efforts on the things that you do have some control over. And so the ability to accept allows you to refocus on the things that you can control and sometimes reframe them in a more positive way. I'd like to ask you a personal question and then build from it if it's possible. So you've written eloquently about depression. Have you ever been depressed? Or to put it a little more generally, have you had times in your life in which you were yourself caught in the undertow of depressed mood? Yeah, I would say most certainly. I've never been diagnosed with depression. But when I was writing the book, or certainly in grad school studying depression, and part of the reasons why I went to study neuroscience in the first place was like, I was thinking back to this, this time in college, where I just remember being like, overwhelmed, wondering like what I was going to be doing with the rest of my life. Yeah. Through most of your childhood and college, there's a very clear path and a set of rewards. And you're like, oh, okay, I can do that. I can jump through that hoop. I can do this. But then at some point, like you have to make a choice sort of about what you're going to do next. And we often think of, of choice as like being a good thing, like, oh, I have freedom. But it can also be overwhelming. So when, when you were depressed in that way, or when you were... I think of it as being caught in depressed mood, yes, which right. is a kind of a broader way of putting it. What did you do to get out of it or to put it a little differently? If you could jump into a time machine and go back and talk to that younger version of yourself, I think in college, if you were to basically say three key things in a bottom line way to that younger version of you to help that younger version get out of that downward spiral, what are those yeah. three things? Well, I think when, when you phrase it the first way of like, what did you do to get out of it? Yeah. I don't think I, I did anything to get out of it. I was just, I happened to stumble into an upward spiral because of the way, you know, my life was situated and the friends that I had. I just inadvertently had these things that helped me get out of it. One of them, was Ultimate Frisbee, which mm-hmm. was a, 
a combination of numerous things. This commitment they had made to like go to a certain place at a certain time and be around supportive people. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, oh, it didn't matter how I was feeling. And that's one of the problems that happens in depression or it puts you at greater risk for getting stuck in depression is when all of your choices are simply guided by your moment-to-moment feelings about things. If your whole life was just doing whatever you feel like at whatever point, like you would start to lose a sense of meaningfulness or a sense of achievement, which are very important. So I was committed to this positive activity. And, and part of that was the social aspect. Part of that was just exercise. Physical activity and exercise helps you. And then another big thing was just something simple as seasonal changes in light levels. And so, you know, when I came back home to Los Angeles for winter break for four weeks, you know, things were a lot, lot better. I wouldn't have realized that it was the, the changes in light levels, but certainly as the, like the wind, when I went back to college in New England, the winter progresses. And all of a sudden, you know, it's brighter out. You're like, oh, okay, things don't quite seem so overwhelming anymore. In the book, there is just this great manual of advice in the second half of it. The first half of it is a lot of stuff on the neurology of this and what's kind of going on in the brain while depression is happening. And the second half, it's really more advice-driven. It's here are kind of some practical things that you can do in order to work with the brain, develop traits in your life. And you break these out into a variety of categories. Of course, the real answer here is that it's, it's a long and complicated answer and read the book. But if you were to kind of boil some of those down to a couple key pieces of advice for people, what are the ones that you would really want to highlight? Finding social support mm-hmm. is a huge one. Physical activity, just getting regular exercise, but not doesn't have to be intense exercise, just anything that requires a little bit more movement than what you're doing currently. If you're lying on the couch all day, you don't have to run a marathon. Just get up and walk outside. And the third other the piece that I mentioned too is about sunlight, that getting outside and just changing your environment can help in numerous ways because you're just physically you're changing your environment, but also that sunlight absorbed through the skin changes vitamin D production was as part of the synthesis of serotonin and that ambient levels of light that come through your eyes change your circadian rhythms, Mm -hmm. which change the quality of your sleep. And so all of these, these actions that I was doing inadvertently were affecting my brain in a positive way. The social interaction affects dopamine and the oxytocin system, which helps reduce stress and improve positive feelings and the exercise is sort of like fertilizer for the brain. It helps strengthen and grow new neurons. It changes the serotonin system, the dopamine system. It also helps to manage and reduce stress and changing your environment and particularly being in a brightly lit environment during the day helps you get better quality of sleep. And so those are three big things Mm, that mm -hmm. can do to help reverse the course of depression. And though the one of the things that really I think is the most important that I would probably would have liked to explain to myself is 
simply understanding what's going on. Mm. And that's not something that you can do. It's just sort of something that, oh, you can recognize about yourself and the situation that you're in. And sometimes learning about how the human brain works helps you realize, oh, it's not something wrong with me. That's how the brain works. Mm -hmm. What it means to be human. And that's really why the first half of my book is really focused on explaining the neuroscience and explaining like why the human brain has these tendencies and gets stuck in these patterns. Because actually the, the publisher, the editor, when I was writing it, she had a comment on my first submission of several chapters of like, why are you spending so much time like explaining all this neuroscience and whatever? Like, <laughs> just tell people like, what can they do? What can they do? And while there are many things that you can do that can change the activity and chemistry of these circuits, sometimes you can't do anything. But understanding what's going on so mm. that you stop blaming yourself and stop trying to control things that you can't control just helps you start that process. And that is a benefit if you don't make any other changes. Yeah, no, I think that that's right on the money. And it's a wonderful reflection, both on kind of your state at the time, how you were, you were flowed along by this river of positive causes, some of which were advertent and some of which were just totally inadvertent. And also just a reflection on our own understanding. And when we have an experience of true understanding of something, it's much easier to come to terms with it. So I really appreciated it. And we're unfortunately running out of time here a bit, Alex, but thank you so much for doing this with us today. Oh, you're welcome. It was great, great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Today, we had the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Alex Korb. We had a wide-ranging conversation related to depression, the brain, the mind, and the way that our mind interacts with the societal functions around us. We actually started by taking a look, kind of by accident, at ritual and the way that different social interactions can be predetermined by the transactional nature of our relationships. When do we want to drop into a mode of truly relating to somebody else as opposed to simply acknowledging their existence as they move by. One of the many reasons that people can start to feel isolated, lonely, and therefore eventually depressed is that our societal interactions can often feel like a bit of a thin soup, and we might be hungering for deeper interactions than what we're currently accessing. From there, we moved into material related to the book, The Upward Spiral. Dr. Korb articulated what the upward and downward spirals are and how they can lead to either greater happiness or greater unhappiness. In short, negative experiences tend to compound and positive experiences tend to compound also. A point that was highlighted is how positive states, while good in and of themselves, are truly powerful when they're used to build positive traits, which can endure regardless of our circumstances. Dr. Korb did a great job of highlighting the way that depression functions in the brain neurologically and how there really isn't anything that most of the time appears to be that different about the brain of a depressed person versus a not depressed person and how depression is less about activity in any one area of the brain and more about a very complex soup of interactions between various brain regions lining up with our cultural environment, lining up with any one of a dozen or a hundred or, hey, thousands of other factors. From there, we moved into some practical material. 
A couple of the things that Alex really highlighted were the importance of gratitude, acceptance, physical activity, depth of relationship with other people, and then finally, some environmental factors like literally access to sunlight. A lot of people suffer from seasonal affective disorders of various kinds. And simply changing the quality of light that you get through the course of a given day can actually have a big impact on your overall happiness and well-being. Again, the book is The Upward Spiral, using neuroscience to reverse the course of depression, one small change at a time. If you'd like to learn more about the book, which I'd strongly recommend to anyone who is either struggling with or wants to learn more about how depression works in the brain, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a positive rating and review and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. Until next time, thanks for listening.